the History Channel original podcast. History This Week. And Sports History This Week. October 13th, 1982. I'm Sally Helm. And I'm Kaylin Jones. Kaylin Jones, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Sally. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's great to have you here. I'm happy to be here. For anyone listening in to this friendly chat who does not know, uh, Kaylin, you are the host of Sports History This Week, which I would say is like the sibling of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good way to describe it, right? Definitely have older sister, younger brother vibes looking up to you. So it's it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys, our sports history colleagues, have brought us the episode that we are going to do today. So, Kaylin, tell us, what is this story about? It's about a man who some say was the greatest American athlete in history and who, soon after his crowning achievement, was cheated of his glory. Wow. In October 1982, the International Olympic Committee in Switzerland, the IOC, fires off a press release. It comes after years of lobbying on behalf of the figure at the center of this story. Lobbying by everyone, from his family to some of the highest-ranking officials in the United States government. Okay, so wait, who are we talking about here? Sally, we're talking about Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe won two gold medals at the Olympics in 1912, in the pentathlon and decathlon. Okay, pentathlon, decathlon, we're talking fives, tens. These are the events where, like, you basically do everything. You run, you jump, you swim, you bike, I don't know. (laughs) No, you're on the right track, Sally. They are all-out tests of athletic skill. And Jim Thorpe won them both. He won them easily. He was immediately hailed as the world's greatest athlete. Native Americans especially revered him as one of their own. He was a member of the Sac and Fox tribe, who just walked onto an international stage and seized the spotlight. Simply put, Jim Thorpe was a hero. And yet, less than a year later, it was all stripped away. Yeah, why did that happen? It's complicated. The reasons have to do with bigotry and greed, as well as a very strange and hypocritical legal distinction from that time. A distinction about the difference between amateur and professional sports. Okay, so complex web of factors back in 1912 when he wins his medals. But, Kaylin, why are we starting in 1982, decades after Jim Thorpe won his medals at the Olympics? Well, we're starting there because that's when the decades-long fight to reinstate his victories and restore his unfairly tarnished name reached their climax. But before we get there, we're going to get into the wildly improbable story of Jim Thorpe. How he went from a flat, dusty patch of what was then called Indian territory to Olympic gold and global fame. Trust me, it's like a movie. All right, Kaylin, I am in. Tell me what happened today. Today, the rise, fall, and legacy of Jim Thorpe. How did this fantastically gifted Native American athlete transform himself from a child of poverty on the plains of Oklahoma to the toasts of kings and queens? And how did he fight back against the handful of men who tried to rob him of what he'd earned by plunging him into scandal? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, so today we are talking about Jim Thorpe with Kaylin Jones, who again hosts our sibling podcast, Sports History This Week. So, Kaylin, where does the Jim Thorpe story begin? I can't believe I'm going to say to Sally. <laughs> it is literally a dark and stormy night. The night that he and Charlie were born, there was a thunderstorm and lightning was illuminating the river and the path outside their cabin. That's David Marinus, an associate editor at The Washington Post and author of several sports history books, one just recently published about the life of Jim Thorpe. He told us that that thunderstorm in 1887, the one during which Jim Thorpe and his twin brother Charlie were born, actually gave Jim his tribal name, Wathohuk, which translates to Bright Path, or Path Lit by Lightning. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, that's the title of my book. It illuminates everything. Thorpe was born into the Sac and Fox Nation on a reservation in what would soon be called Oklahoma Territory. What did that mean to him? It meant everything. When it came to his identity, the Sac and Fox Nation was always perhaps the proudest part about him. Sonny Klotchishilagi was a sports reporter on the Navajo Nation for 10 years and is now a PhD student studying indigenous writing at the University of New Mexico. Put every alkylate aside, put every metal aside, everything that everyone knows about him from the outside, the one thing that he had always said that he was most proud of was to be indigenous. The Sac and Fox Nation sets him on the right path in a lot of ways, one being sports. He played a lot of Sac and Fox games, which mostly were running and jumping and swinging into the river and swimming and hunting and fishing with his father. But the Sac and Fox aren't exactly left to live in peace. The Dawes Act, passed in 1887, the same year Thorpe was born, allows and encourages white settlers to move onto their lands, displacing indigenous people. Within five years, 75% of native Oklahoma territory is given away to these settlers. And Jim Thorpe is watching all this play out as a child. There was no secret about these tensions. It was really very out in the open of what was happening. He understood what that turmoil was. He understood the traumatic experiences because he lived it. The federal government also encourages indigenous children to go to boarding schools, often far away from where they're raised. He was sent to boarding schools at a fairly early age, first to the Sac and Fox Boarding School in Stroud, Oklahoma, then to the Haskell Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. He often ran away from both of those places, probably for good reasons when you really learn more about Indian boarding schools. Yeah, I've heard that these boarding schools could be extremely rough places. Where does Thorpe end up going to school? So after running away from those other two schools, he ends up at a place called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The founder and first superintendent of Carlisle, Richard Henry Pratt, was a U.S. Army officer who thought he was doing the Indians a good service. His motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. In other words, after the pure genocide of the middle of the 19th century, he thought the only way for Native Americans, for indigenous people to survive was to fully acculturate and assimilate them into white society. You're being pulled away and into 
a space, an environment that is foreign to you and treat it like you are untrustworthy, essentially that everything that you've ever known is incorrect, stripped of their language, stripped of their culture, having to get rid of their hair, having to put on clothes that didn't belong to them, just really just kind of erasing anything about a person. Jim Thorpe, at 16 years old, has already had a difficult life. Both his mother and twin brother had died by this point, and he's already run away from those two other boarding schools. His father is also in poor health. But his father's latest wife wanted nothing to do with Jim Thorpe, so they tried to get him as far away as possible and sent him off to Pennsylvania. So that's how he got there. He didn't necessarily want to go. So Jim Thorpe is now at Carlisle, against his will, halfway across the country from where he was born, and in a place that, I mean, from the sounds of it, really just wants to strip him of the things that make him who he is. Just to give you an idea, two days into his time there, the school celebrates Dawes Day, celebrating the Dawes Act. Wow, the law you just mentioned that basically kicks Indigenous people off of their land. Exactly. Wow. The day-to-day is difficult, too. It's a military-style institution. Thorpe's shoes are even checked for their shininess. Reveille plays at 6 a.m., breakfast at 7. Class lasts for four hours in the morning, and for four hours in the afternoon, students are either sent to the industrial shop or to local farms as cheap labor. It's not a place where individual choices are encouraged, but while working on one of these farms, Thorpe does make a choice. The sort of eureka moment came when he was at Carlisle, working on the farm at the school, walked by the track, saw the high jump bar at about six feet. None of the jumpers could clear it. Jim Thorpe thinks to himself, I can do that. And Jim Thorpe, in his overalls, cleared the bar. And he's not even a student athlete yet, right? Nope. Just someone who thinks, or I guess knows, he can pull it off. And the next day, Thorpe gets called into the office of Pop Warner. He coaches track and football at Carlisle. Today, he's associated with youth football. Basically, what Little League is the baseball, Pop Warner is the football. And when he's called into the office, Thorpe really has no idea why he's there. He thought he was in trouble. He'd never met Warner before. So what's up, you know? Warner said, uh, you got to get a track uniform because you're not my team. So in a matter of 24 hours, Thorpe is on the Carlisle track team. And he's pretty good. He could put the shot. He could run the hurdles. He could high jump and broad jump. Soon, he's on Warner's football team, too. And this is when? What year are we in? This is 1907, and Thorpe is 20 years old. Okay, 1907. So I gotta believe that football does not look the same then as it does now? That's definitely true, in a lot of ways. And maybe no one represents that more than the coach, Pop Warner. You know, in that era, it's funny. You could devise these crazy plays. He had one play where he he would have a pocket sewn into the jersey of one of his players and hide the football in it. (laughs) He had another play where one of his ends could literally go around the bench of the opposition and come out onto the field on the other side and catch a pass. (laughs) There were no rules against those types of plays. This all sounds fun, but football is also an incredibly dangerous game. In the 1907 season alone, 11 college football players die from injuries on the field. Die? Wow. Okay, so Thorpe is definitely putting his body on the line by playing, but how does he do? Sally, I mean, he's incredible. He ran like a horse going downhill, but he also was deft and agile. 
fearless. He rarely got hurt. And when he did get hurt, he still played. He had an electricity to him that you see in great athletes. It's a little hard to describe, but when you see it, you just go, wow. Jim Thorpe is clearly this emerging star. And Pop Warner wants to get him out there against all the top college football teams. The top college teams? But, I mean, isn't that a little strange? Like, the Carlisle School is not a college, right? Yeah, good catch. It's not a college. Some of the students are young teenagers, but some are actually in their early to mid-20s. So, college-aged. And like a lot of things, this move by Pop Warner really comes down to money. Carlisle played most of its games on the road. They were a great attraction because of their exoticness. You know, they were Native Americans. They were Indians. And they were good. Wherever they played, you know, Penn, Princeton, Yale, West Point, or Harvard, they drew huge audiences, which were good both for the home team and for Carlisle. But as he explained this business, David Marinus also pointed out how ironic this all was. This is a school that was trying to pound their culture out of them. And yet they were being an attraction because of that very thing, that they were Indians, you know? So there's a dichotomy and contradiction in it. Surrounded by all this, Thorpe is able to establish himself as not just the best football player on his team, but arguably in the whole country. He plays on both offense and defense. He even kicks punts and field goals. He typically plays all 60 minutes of the game, the whole thing. And Carlisle is beating top college programs left and right. Okay, so I have to think that Thorpe is starting to get some attention. Oh, he definitely is. And you can also see the start of this sort of strange, contradictory mythology that forms around him in the media. A lot of the headlines, a lot of the coverage, it's always just this, how in the world is he able to do this? Because it was just impossible to believe that someone like him, with his background and his identity, was capable of everything that he was able to do. You know, even to the point of in indicating or saying, there's got to be something wrong with him. He's just too good. So they chalk it up to Jim Thorpe as some mystical being who doesn't even need practice, which plays in the stereotypes about athletes of color and just isn't true. Well, it's baloney. He did practice hard to develop his skills, and he also was ahead of his time in sort of uh, mentally preparing himself for competition. One of his teammates, Abel Kiviat, said that one of Jim Thorpe's amazing talents was to watch someone else do something and then perform it better than that person. And soon, that talent is going to be used on another sport. Not only he plays football, we've talked about him doing track. He does baseball too, right? I mean, how does he get involved in that? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the trifecta. That's what makes him unparalleled. The summer of 1909, Jim Thorpe heads south. Carlisle Indian athletes had been playing summer baseball for years before that. In the Eastern Carolina League, it was common to have college athletes, but most of them played under aliases. Huh, why do they need to do that? Why are they playing under different names? One word, amateurism. Amateurs are athletes who don't get paid to play, at least not out in the open. And back then, it was a big deal to get paid to play sports. Many saw it as somehow impure, that sports should be reserved for those who could afford to not get paid. Mm, so wealthy people. Exactly. But baseball is one of those sports where getting paid is a little more acceptable at the time. Okay, so Thorpe is getting paid. Yeah, but not life-changing money. About $2 a game, which comes out to roughly $30 a month. He and two of his teammates went down to play in the Eastern Carolina League for the Rocky Mount Railroaders. 
But Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. His performance on the diamond is recorded in the local papers over two summers. And after that, in 1910, Pop Warner convinces him to come back to Carlisle. Warner persuaded him to come back, largely because his teams weren't winning anymore. He needed his best player. The two men strike a deal. Pop Warner himself told Thorpe that if he came back, he could train for the 1912 Olympics and become famous and make some money. So Thorpe comes back to Carlisle and leads the football team to greatness once again. But that's not all he does. Each morning, he wakes up at sunrise and walks 20 miles toward the Blue Ridge Mountains and back. Then, spends the rest of the day honing his skills at track and field. Okay, so casual. He's just relaxing. (laughs) Not doing too much, right? Right, no, I mean, that sounds extremely intense. (laughs) Very. But it works. He passes the Olympic trials and makes it onto the U.S. Olympic team. In the summer of 1912, he heads to Stockholm, Sweden, with Pop Warner tagging along. Thorpe is there to compete in two events. First came the pentathlon. The pentathlon is actually five separate events. Long jump, javelin throw, 200-meter run, discus throw, and 1,500-meter run. He won that going away. It wasn't even close. He wins his first gold medal easily. Wow. And then comes the decathlon. Ten events in only three days. Um, you know, running, jumping, and throwing. Um, everything that the Olympic motto talks about, faster, stronger, higher. Thorpe wraps up the first day in first place. Day two, not as easy. On the second day, he couldn't find his shoes. His shoes? His shoes. You know, whether they were stolen or not is a question that's unanswerable, but he might have misplaced them. Anyway, he was about to compete and didn't have any shoes, so he and Pop Warner found some mismatched shoes, different sizes, and Jim wore two pairs of socks on one foot to compete. Kaylin, if Jim Thorpe wins wearing two mismatched shoes... He does. Come on. I know. It's hard to believe, but he holds on the first place for the rest of the decathlon and wins his second gold medal. It's really hard to compare any athletes from different eras, but Jim Thorpe won that decathlon by a larger margin than anybody before or almost since. Then comes the medal ceremony. He's given a huge bronze bust for winning the pentathlon and a replica silver Viking ship for winning the decathlon. King Gustav V of Sweden hands out the medals personally. The exchange between these two men has become a defining and controversial scene in Thorpe's life. The way the story is later told, the king tells him, He said, you, sir, are the most wonderful athlete in the world. And what was Thorpe's response to that? Well, the myth is he said, thanks, king. Thanks, king. You know, which is funny, but it's also like, of course, that's what an Indian who didn't care anything would say. Jim Thorpe himself said he said, thank you. And I believe that more. I mean, sports writers were always putting words into Jim Thorpe's mouth. So, the Olympics are over. He has won two gold medals. I mean, I would have to think he's pretty popular by the time he gets home to the U.S. Sally, he's a sensation. First, he returns to Carlisle, where the whole town shuts down for the day to celebrate. Officials make speeches. A letter is read out from President Taft. Pop Warner also gives a speech. And then Jim Thorpe himself speaks to the crowd. It's not some big victory speech. He says just 12 words. All I can say is that you showed me a good time. Okay, so Jim Thorpe is now being hailed as the greatest athlete in the world. He has two gold medals. 
But he has to keep living his life, right? Like, he has to do something else next. So what does he do? Pop Warner actually convinces him to come back and play football for Carlisle. He's 25, older than most of the competition, but he still dominates. There's one legendary game that season in November when Carlisle goes to West Point. Mm, So this game is essentially going to be the U.S. Army versus a team of Native American athletes. Two groups that have, you know, been at war on and off since the 1700s. (laughs) Yeah, the symbolism isn't lost on anyone going into the game. And there's one West Point player who would talk about this matchup for the rest of his life. One of the players on the opposing team, the Army, was Dwight Eisenhower, the future president. Eisenhower played linebacker on defense, and before the game, he and one of his teammates had plotted on how they were bound and determined to knock Jim Thorpe out of the game. There were a couple of collisions, and at one point, Thorpe was knocked woozy, but he got up and kept playing, and certainly thereafter, he knocked Eisenhower out of the game. Wait, so the future president Eisenhower is, like, passed out on the field? Clean out. Where's the time-traveling Secret Service when you need them, right? Where are they? (laughs) But apparently, there were no hard feelings. Eisenhower and everyone else who watched it said it was the single best performance on a football field they'd ever seen. Eisenhower would later joke, you know, I tackled Jim Thorpe once. And what he meant was, yeah, once. (laughs) In the game. As the season winds down, Thorpe has countless opportunities. He might play professional baseball or professional hockey. Maybe star in a vaudeville show. One article from The Times said he was getting 30 letters a day from women who wanted to marry him. All right, sounds like he has it made. He does, until Roland Friday, an editor at the Worcester Telegram, tells a colleague he's heard a rumor. It comes from a baseball manager who was in town, one who had worked in the Eastern Carolina League around 1908. He said that Jim Thorpe had played for him professionally. Why was that important? Well, if Jim Thorpe was a professional athlete, if he made money from playing sports, that would mean he wasn't an amateur. And only amateurs can compete in the Olympics. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay. So the story breaks. Jim Thorpe got paid to play baseball. And is it the case that if that is true, he should not have been allowed to compete in the Olympics? See, that's the question the public starts asking. Thorpe stays silent at first, but the people close to him in his life start to talk. Pop Warner denies Thorpe ever played professionally, but David Marinus says Warner knew the truth. Pop Warner knew all about it, had been sending players to baseball for years, Met with Thorpe at least twice during the period when he was gone. Once they were on a hunting trip together, and it stretches the imagination to think that he didn't want to know where his best player was. Thorpe decides to publicly admit to his time in pro ball after a visit from Pop Warner. He writes a letter, or at least he puts his name on a letter. According to Marinus, 
Pop Warner feigned ignorance and actually wrote the letter of confession for Thorpe. Interesting. How does Meredith know that? First, you can just look at who this letter benefits. It exonerates Pop Warner, (laughs) and it exonerates all of the Olympic Committee people who should have known better and did know. It exonerates everyone except Jim Thorpe. There's one line from the letter that many argue gives it away. I was simply an Indian schoolboy and did not know all about such things. To make it sound like, well, Jim was just a dumb Indian and didn't know any better. I mean, does anyone come out to support Jim Thorpe during this time? Oh, yeah. Most of the American public and people around the world don't want to see this happen. Even the competitors who came in second and third to him say he won fair and square. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it's definitely clear he won fair and square in terms of the athletics themselves, like he dominated the Olympics. But did he break the rules? I mean, was there a rule that if you played professional athletics, you couldn't win an Olympic medal? That is a rule. But there's also another rule, a rule about the rule. A rule that said that to challenge someone's amateurism, a complaint had to be filed within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. And that story in the Worcester Telegram didn't appear for six months. And David Marinus also said Thorpe wasn't the only one who got paid to play. Was George S. Patton, who was also on that team, an amateur, when he was being paid by the U.S. Army to train for his events? Whereas Thorpe was paid to play baseball, which had nothing to do with his events. Were the Swedish athletes amateurs because Sweden had given them all leave from their jobs six months before the Olympics started so they could train at full pay? Is that an amateur? Were all of the college players who were being paid under the table amateur or not? Do you think a white athlete would have been subjected to that type of scrutiny? And do you think race played a factor in that? Definitely. I think he was a fall guy. I don't think you can say that it was entirely because of race, but I think it was a lot easier to blame him than to open up the whole wound of the phoniness of amateurism all around. And so he was an easy person to throw under the bus, basically. It was just so unbelievable for people that a way was found to make it believable. Sonny clutches Shilligy again. And the way to do that was to say that this person essentially cheated. The stripping of those medals really speaks to how I think Indigenous people as a whole were looked at. It was an act of erasure. How does Jim Thorpe react to this? I mean, it must have been really devastating. Well, maybe not too surprisingly, he finds a way to carry on. He doesn't talk about it much. He said it's part of the ups and downs of being a Native American. His athletic career continues, too. The next summer, he does join up with a pro baseball team, the New York Giants. And Pop Warner is the one who helps him work out the contract. Wait, after all of this, Pop Warner is still in his life? It's one of the most confusing parts of the story. Thorpe comes to believe, in a way, that he needs Warner to succeed. They had a certain codependence. They rose together, Jim Thorpe and Pop Warner. I don't think that Thorpe focused so much on how Pop Warner had been duplicitous during the time when the medals were taken away. Jim took it upon himself that that he had done that. He acknowledged what he had done playing baseball. And he didn't really focus on who else was part of that or, or lying about it. So he carries on. He's actually a fairly average baseball player. And when his time with that sport ends, he returns to football. Professional football is just being born. And Thorpe, even while after his time playing football for Carlisle, is still the biggest name in the sport. Thorpe coming to the league gave it a status that it didn't have before. 
And that built over the years so that by 1920, when the incipient National Football League was being formed, it was called the American Professional Football Association, but it would become the NFL, Thorpe was named its first president. He helped shepherd the league through its first year, giving it legitimacy. But soon, he's out of sports completely and struggles to get by. His post-athletic life was difficult. He struggled with alcohol. You know, he had so many different jobs. He lived in 20 different states. At one point was digging ditches in Los Angeles. The guy just went and picked up a shovel because he has to. That was an act of resisting in the sense that, you know, I'm not going to let all of this get me down. I might not have all of these things, but I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it. He hustled. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. He acted in 70 movies in Hollywood, mostly as an extra. He owned taverns in Southern California and Nevada. He worked in Chicago with the uh, Youth Athletic Commission. It was a constant struggle for him. After a few decades, Thorpe does come back into the spotlight. In 1951, when Jim Thorpe was in his 60s, Hollywood finally produced a movie called Jim Thorpe, All-American. An Oklahoma Indian lad whose untamed spirit gave wings to his feet and carried him to immortality. Thorpe was played by Burt Lancaster, you know, the great movie star, who was white, of course, not Native American. And the movie is told from the perspective of Pop Warner, played by Charles Bickford. And behind the glory and glamour, colorful days at Carlisle University, where he first met Pop Warner, the famous coach who molded Jim's athletic career. He makes it sound as though if only Jim Thorpe had listened to him and successfully assimilated himself fully into white society, he wouldn't have had many of the problems that he had later in life. For Thorpe himself, the film was a trade-off. It certainly pushed him back into the public limelight. It was a very successful movie, but he was called a consultant on it. He didn't get to consult much, and he wasn't paid very much. He maybe made a maximum of $20,000 from that movie. But the film does start a conversation that maybe Thorpe should get his medals back. He was never boasting about himself. He felt that he deserved his due. He deserved to get those medals and records back, but he didn't go around saying, I'm the greatest, even though he was. Thorpe dies in 1953, a year and a half after the film debuts. But the momentum to restore his medals continues to build. His surviving wife, his children, sports writers, politicians all take up the fight. Presidents Nixon and Ford each make their own push. And what finally pushes things over the edge? A few things. There's turnover within the IOC leadership. Thorpe's first biographer brings that 30-day amateur role back into the conversation. And the Olympics are coming back to America. The timing just feels right. Pressure had been mounting for a long time. So the IOC makes that announcement in October of 1982 that Thorpe's gold medals will be restored. The January after, the IOC puts on a ceremony in Los Angeles. Invited all of Jim Thorpe's children and gave them replica medals. So in the one sense, they thought they were doing right and restoring a wrong. In the other sense, it was really a half-hearted thing because his records were still not in the record books and he was considered sort of tied for first place with the second place winners. So they didn't really do him justice. Until 2022, this past July, the IOC voted to not just restore Thorpe's gold medals, 
but to also reinstate him as the sole winner of these two events. So finally putting things back fully the way they were. Exactly. To be able to have Jim Thorpe win and have what is rightfully his is a win for all of us. And so I think that we all go through trials and tribulations and at times feel robbed, um, at times feel cheated in one way or another. But I think that something like this just kind of shows us like what the good fight does. And on top of righting a wrong, maybe the way we tell Jim Thorpe's story can start to evolve. This controversy should just be that little speckle that people talk about and instead focus on this incredible person, not just incredible athlete, incredible person, incredible indigenous person. Kaylin, thank you so much for bringing us this story. Thank you for letting me share it, Sally. Listeners, if you want to hear more sports history stories like these, subscribe to Sports History This Week. You got to do it. Thanks for the plug, Sally. Episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to add us wherever you get your podcasts. And for more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch with either of these podcasts, you can shoot us an email at historythisweek at history.com or leave us a voicemail, 212 212- Thanks to our guests, David Marinus, associate editor at The Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, and Sonny Klotchis-Chilligy, journalist and PhD candidate focusing on cultural, indigenous, and Navajo rhetoric at the University of New Mexico. This episode was produced by our senior producer, Ben Dickstein, with support from Morgan Givens. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Dan Rosato. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week and Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.